Good morning again. I hope that you are able to join us and you're not having any issues with our live stream. We're so thankful for the dedicated uh, work behind the scenes, uh, Corey and his team uh, providing this for us uh, today. Uh, what a beautiful Easter Sunday that we had uh, last week. And, and uh, I hope that you and your family had a blessed Easter. You know, we have the season of Lent, 40 days of Lent from Ash Wednesday uh, up to, to Easter. And, and more and more Christians, even evangelical Christians, are sort of marking a holy season of, of Lent, giving something up, taking, uh, taking time maybe to pick some new things up, to turn our attention uh, to, to Christ in a way that he's coming, preparing for Easter. But now, actually, on the other side, this is a new season called Eastertide that we're not really that familiar with. But uh, over this next season of of, of weeks, this is a whole time of celebration. So during that season of Lent, you give up stuff, you, you know, you give up, what did you give up? Chocolate, that must have been painful. What else did you give up? <laughs> what, what did you give up, Bodwell? He gave up all kinds of things. But this is time to pick up new things and to celebrate. Uh, this time between now and uh, Ascension Day, it's the 39 days, it's the Thursday, and then Pentecost Sunday. And on Pentecost Sunday, 50 days from Easter, uh, we will be finishing our series in the book of Revelation. So if you've been with us all the way through from way back, it seems like forever ago, but it was uh, September of 2019 that we started this series, uh, we will finish uh, at the end of May. Many things happening uh, in, in our world today. And just give you a little slice of what's happening in, in the Della Santina household. This has been a big week uh, our son, Jonathan, has now officially been enrolled at Tahoma High School. Uh, very excited for that. He's at a great school, uh, Rainier Christian, but next year he's going to be a junior at Tahoma. He's got all the classes, and he's going to be ready for the future, right? Absolutely. Right? Future ready. future ready. He's future ready. And I never actually had a single AP class. I don't know how you have a schedule with four of them in one thing. That seems like a lot. But anyway, so that's exciting. The other thing that was exciting was yesterday... I took Jonathan out for his first driving lesson, which is pretty, that's a big deal. And no one got hurt. Uh, so these major mile markers and, and touchstones in people's lives, I think about uh, the way the high school is honoring uh, high school seniors like, like Nick that won't have all the celebration of this year. We want to mark, we want to celebrate those milestones. You know a milestone in my family's life that I'm, I'm even more proud of in the life of Jonathan than enrolling at a new school, or learning to drive. Today marks the 11th anniversary when Jonathan prayed to receive Jesus as his Lord and Savior. Amen. So we mark that as a, as a celebration in our family. It's a little, maybe that seems a little odd to some people, a little countercultural, but we, we have that on our calendar, just like a birthday. Uh, we want to mark that and celebrate uh, him passing over from, from one side to the other, uh, to, from spiritual darkness even, even as a child moving away from the Lord, that path that would lead him away and walking now with Jesus and growing in his relationship with God. Praise God for that. Now we're, book, we're back in the study of the book of Revelation. For the fourth time in the book of Revelation, John will use the word open, dividing the vision, the big vision, into five parts or five sections. Maybe you can look for those, those uses of the verb open. At the prologue, at the beginning, and the epilogue at the end, you have seven parts 
to the book of Revelation, that, that perfect number we've seen again and again. But the big vision is broken down into five parts. And so since we have a little bit more time, let me just share with you. Some of us like to, are note takers. Maybe you're a Tahoma people. Not, not me, I'm a note taker. But if you're a note taker, here you go. After the, the introduction, the prologue, part one begins in chapter one, verse nine, and it goes to chapter, through chapter three. And it starts with these words, I heard behind me a loud voice. And John turns, his eyes are open, and he sees a vision of Jesus standing there amidst his churches. And then Jesus dictates seven letters to the churches. Part two is chapter four all the way to chapter 11, verse 18. Chapter four, verse one says, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. John just gets to peek in. The door's open. He sort of gets to peek in at the, the throne room of, and he sees the ancient of days and he sees the lamb. Part three, 11, verse nine, all the way to chapter 15, verse four. The temple of God in heaven was open. John gets to come in a little bit more into the room and look around, and now he sees the Ark of the Covenant, and he sees more. Part 4, chapter 15, verse 5, all the way to where we ended Palm Sunday in chapter 19, verse 10, I looked, and behold, uh, the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was open. And he sees a series of judgments, and that scene ends with a, with a great wedding feast of the Lamb. And then finally we come to part cinco, this final part, the passage we're looking at today, all the way to, to the end of the story until the epilogue, uh, 1911 through 22.7. He says, then I saw heaven open. He sees it all at this point. He sees it open. And all of these little visions build up to the grand unveiling of the descending of the city of God, the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and earth. That's where we're headed, folks. And the commandment in the book of Revelation, the directive, the main order above all orders in this book can be summed up in one word. Look. Look. It says 19 times the commandment to look or to behold. Open your eyes and, and to see. We're, we're not told to, to go. We're not told to worship. We're not told to witness. We're not told to conquer. We're not even told to love. We're told to look. Because what John's saying to us here is he's saying, if we look, if we see Jesus risen and reigning, then when we go and we worship and we witness and we conquer and we love, we'll do it like never before. So what are we seeing? What's God helping us see in this reality of the book of Revelation? Well, when John comes to the final major section and portion of this text, with all the things that have happened already, all the mind-popping, crazy things that he's seen, beautiful things that he's seen, at last, what does he see before him? A person. The one who changes everything. And so my, my aim is to just 
call your attention for the next, let's say, 30 minutes. We got, what, 168 hours in a week? Can I get half an hour, just half an hour of your attention? And that together we, we might see the risen Lord Jesus, our Savior King. And in seeing him, everything else that you see in your life will be put in its pro proper perspective. All the things that are frustrating, all the bad news. I'm not even sure how you're going to pay rent next month and put food on the table in two months. And when will this nightmare end? All of that will be put in perspective if for just a half an hour we can see, we can behold his glory. So I want to help us to see, and I want that seeing to, to motivate us to, to long for his return, the return of the king. I think John is having this incredible series of visions on the Lord's day, and it's stirring up in him a confidence, an encouragement, a, a holy kind of fear, but also a longing for the return of Jesus. So I want that for us. I, I, I want us to be the type of people who say, Lord, I want you to reign over my life. I want to get, cast all my cares on you. I want to trust you, who you are, who I see you to be. And in doing so, we'll be like the type of people that the Apostle Paul wrote about in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. He, he talked about the type of people that Timothy was ministering to who one day would receive the crown of righteousness. We've seen that in the book of Revelation. He says, how will they receive it? It says, because, quote unquote, we longed for his appearing. We longed to see Jesus. So, friends, I want to read the text uh, this morning. It's chapter 19, verse 11 to 21, the end of this chapter. And this is so intense. We are seeing the Savior, Warrior, King coming. I mean, we, this is not like a, Rob, I love you, but we don't need like a little twinkle, twinkle piano play. We need like a face-melting, like guitar. We need immigrant song, get the lead out, just... Come on. Okay, I'm, don't scare you, but, but that's the kind of attitude that I see this because he's seeing the warrior king come. This is what we've been waiting for, folks. I'm dating myself. Sorry for that. Here we go. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who sits on the horse and against his army. The beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who is in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who sits on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with its flesh, with their flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we've posted on Facebook an outline, a simple outline for today's sermon in three parts. In the first part, if you're taking notes, leave a lot of room because it's going to be two-thirds of what I'm going to have to say is that first part. Verses 11 to 16, the glory of of the king. Verses 17 and 18, the great supper of God, and verses 19 to 21, the victory of the king. So let's look at the glory of the king. John sees and and wants us to see the triumphant savior, warrior, king in all of his glory. Essentially kick the snot out of all of his enemies. That's basically what he's doing, folks. The first six verses are entirely focused on this extraordinary description of Jesus. A Thursday night, we had prayer and praise. And, and, and I think Steve Bodwell was right here, and David Miles was right here. And, and Bodwell talked about hearing from the Lord, and that the Lord said to him, Bodwell, love your wife and be present. And he realized, as he was going through that, he, he realized what the Lord wanted was his presence with him, with the Lord. And then, and then David started to read a, a psalm, psalm, I think it was Psalm 63. We read over and over again, and all of it turning our attention to the Lord. And then Bible came back with Psalm 46, verse 10, be still and know that I'm God. And then Cammy on Friday with her good morning, Maple Valley Church, she said, you know, with all the craziness and all the hardship, you know, the most important thing is to see Jesus. So Bodwell and David and Cammy and Pastor P and John are all saying, look to the Savior and savor this vision. Folks, there's nothing more important for you to do today than to be in his presence. Stop looking at your clock. You got enough coffee. Focus up. Turn your attention to the Lord. Close your eyes if you have to, if there are other distractions. With so much vying for your attention, be in the presence of the Lord, the glory of Christ, That's what John wants us to see. And what does he see? Look at verse 11. Behold, or look, he's riding a white horse. Now, Jesus rode into town on Palm Sunday. What did he ride in on? Rob, what did he ride in on? He rode in on a donkey. A little humble donkey, didn't he? Now he's riding on a war horse. 
But Caesar would ride back into Rome on a giant white horse to show the people who just won the battle, who kicked the snot out of their enemies. And now John has a vision that he can communicate to these poor destitute Christians in Asia Minor of the true hero coming. Finally, a hero that they can count on. Who's he, what's he called? He's called faithful and true. He's 100% reliable. That's his, his name. He will never let you down. Go back to chapter 1, verse 5. John describes him as a faithful and true witness. And here, his name, faithful and true. And in the Bible study questions, I've asked you to compare and contrast the opening section of Revelation with this last section. Here's yet another example of that. The returning king coming for final judgment. And his judgments will be right. They will be righteous. They will be right on. There will be no questioning, no doubting of his motives or his decisions. Okay, let's look at verse 12. Here we've got three descriptions. I'll just read the text again to you. It's on the screen as well, or maybe in your, if you have your Bible open. But let me just read it again. His eyes are like flaming fire on his head, many diadems. That's a crown. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Now remember, if you're new to our study, all these things are first understood as symbolic. What's the symbolic meaning? I mean, we're not literally thinking Jesus is going to have flames flashing out of his eyes or wearing multiple crowns. So, so what does it mean? What's the deeper meaning? Well, again, here's another one, one of those references from part one to part five, the eyes like a flame of fire. Go back to Revelation chapter one, verse 14. You see, again, that parallel. What does it mean? What, what would... What would it call to mind, the idea of flames of fire coming from his eyes? I think it might mean that his gaze is penetrating. That he can see right through you. Not in a scary way, though. Read Psalm 139 and see how David responds when he knows the Lord can see everything. And at the end of it, when he realizes that even in seeing everything, God still loves him. He says, search my heart. Know every part of me, O God. That Jesus can see everything. And, and the flame, it's a symbol of his purity. That means there's no hiding from the Lord. There's no rationalizing. There's no compartmentalizing. He sees it all. He knows what you're thinking. He sees your hidden uh, incognito browser history. He knows where you're spending your money, where you're putting your mind, what your motives are. He sees all of it. Hebrews 4, 13 says, nothing is hidden from God's sight and we must give an account for it all. That's a lot of power. But John says, wait, there's more. He's wearing many diadems. He's wearing many crowns. Now, now the 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 dragon and the beast, they have crowns and that represents Satan and, and the, uh, the evil beast and the false prophet and all those things we've covered in the past. There's a certain amount of power that the evil one has in this world, a certain amount to operate, and that's a mystery to us so to extent, the extent that we can understand it. Jesus has total power. It's total power here. Back in chapter 4, verse 10 and 11, Talk about the 24 elders that cast their crowns down before him. 
Say, any kind of power or authority that I have, any sense that I'm uh, in charge of my own destiny, that I'm the center of my own world, I'm just going to lay that down before you. No, no. You are a greater power. You have it all. I'm going to surrender to you as Lord. That's what it means to know Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, your King. And it says he has a name only he knows. What's that name? Say my name, say my name. What's the name? This is a sign of his divinity, a name that he doesn't know. I mean, I want to thank, or I want to congratulate the Lindbergh family and the Miles family for figuring out. I, I said the name Jesus 53 times plus Yeshua on Easter Sunday. That's a lot of Jesus. That's a lot of Jesus. So congratulations for, for counting up that high. Think of all the, all the different titles we know of Jesus. The Lamb of God, the Good Shepherd, the Bread of Life. And we're just saying the sweet name of Jesus over and over again. And yet, as much as we think we know him, there, there's still more of him yet to be known beyond our understanding in this life. The Apostle Paul says that, uh, he says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. 2 Corinthians 9.15. Paul's referring to Jesus as an indescribable gift. Now let's look at verse 13. John sees that his robe is dipped in blood. Now, a reference to Isaiah 63, which I put in the study notes. I put that there to sort of throw you off because that does mention the Messiah's robe being splattered with the blood of his enemies. To the degree that Isaiah was given revelation from God, that's what he saw. He saw the Messiah that would one day come and would be splattered with the blood of his enemies. It's a, it's a ruthless scene, but in chapter 19, notice where we are. There hasn't been a battle yet. The battle hasn't happened. So whose blood is it? Whose blood is marking Jesus' robes? These are robes of a priest, the robes of a, of a king. Whose blood is it? It is his own blood shed at the cross. That's what, what all of Scripture builds up to. All of the New Testament points to his shed blood on the cross for our redemption. Before this final battle, that's what's marking our king. So I want you to look at Isaiah chapter 53 and see the suffering servant there. That Jesus Christ conquers and wins a battle. And listen, it's not going to be a battle that's yet to be fought. It's a battle that's already been won at Calvary. So someone to ask you, well, so when did you get saved? And John, they could say, rightly so, well, 11 years ago I got saved. But even more true than that, even deeper than that, to say, I was saved 2,000 years ago at Calvary. Even deeper than that, even my, more mind-blowing than that, I was saved from before the foundation of the world. Because God chose to write my name in the book of life. 
He is the lamb who is slain. And all of the New Testament's driving narrative, the through line through all of our studies uh, for two years have been to this point and this answer, Jesus conquers his enemies by shedding his own blood on the cross. That's the way of the lamb to sacrifice. That's his blood that causes the robes of the redeemed to be white, to be white as snow. If you trust in Jesus, then his blood was shed for you. If you refuse to have him as Savior and obey him as Lord, then your blood will be shed for him. People will either be saved by the blood of Jesus through faith in him, or they will be judged and they will pay for their sins. One way or another, we're lingering for a long time on just these first few verses. You see what I'm, what I'm saying here? Do I have your attention? Do I have your attention, please? Because I know there are so many distractions. I've only asked for a half an hour out of the 168. Don't, don't, tune, don't change that channel. Seeing and savoring the vision of the glory of the returning king. Look at the end of verse 13. This is the third title uh, in just these first few verses. We've had the word of God. The faithful and true one, a name only he knows. So verse 12 says he's the word of God, a name that signifies the finality of his judgments rendered. There will be no appeals. Check out John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4 for a continuation of that. And then verse 14, the attention goes off of, of the Lord for a moment at those that are with him. It says, uh, the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. Have you ever seen soldiers wearing linen to battle? I mean, that's great for a spring wear. I don't think you'd wear linen unless you know, number one, that you're a priest, and number two, that your king is going to win no matter what. Now, I'm just going to wear my, I'm just going to wear shorts today for this battle. I'm going to wear flip-flops and shorts and linen because I already know the outcome. That's what they're wearing here. This army includes the saints, all those that Jesus promised in those seven letters that would ride with him, that would reign with him. They are there. Why? Because they're on the winning team. Which team are you on? Are you on a winning team? Don't you want to be a winner? You are in Jesus Christ. The 2020 census is happening right now. Did you guys know this? The census information, it's mandated by the U.S. Constitution, Article 1, Section 2, to count the population of the United States every 10 years. This is very, very important. They count everybody, and that determines where billions of dollars will flow and how many seats in, in Congress, uh, states, and, and congressional districts will have. It's very, very important. The government wants to know who you are. So who are you? What's your truest identity? If someone comes and stops you, and they say, tell me a little bit about yourself. A, a news reporter puts a microphone in your face. Who are you? What are you going to say? What's most important? This vision shows us our prime identity is as saints. That we are more than conquerors. That we are God's beloved that's your identity. Say, so who am I? I'm a beloved child of God. You are not 
defined by the labels society places on you. We already read this and we'll come back to it. The deception of the beast is to throw you off your game, to tell you that you're not on the winning team. So stop listening to the labels that the world puts on you and put first and foremost above all things, beloved child of God, redeemed by the blood of the lamb. That's who I am. He's my king. You're not first and foremost a baby boomer or millennial. Type A, type B, Gen Y, Gen Z. You're not LGBTQ. You're not cisgen male or female or other Republican, Democrat, white person of color, Asian or American Indian or Pacific Islander. These are all labels that we have to fill out. You're not defined by those things. Your personality or your past. Oh, I'm an introvert. Oh, I'm an extrovert. I'm Enneagram one through nine. All of that fades away. You are not a widow, a felon. You're not single, divorced, remarried, unemployed, retired. You're not an addict. And listen, folks, you are not a coog. <laughs> oh, shots fired. Or a husky. <laughs> What will any of those labels mean in a thousand years? 10,000 years into the future. Even one second in heaven, what will the label illegal immigrant? It'll be nonsense. And yet we buy this lie of labels and we happily just put them all over. We don't do bumper stickers nearly as much as we used to back in the day, but we're labeled on all sorts of things. The only label, your true identity is beloved. You're part of the team. You're riding with the winning side. That's why you can wear linen. You can wear linen to the battlefield because you know who's going to win. You get to roll up with Jesus. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword to strike the nation's and he will rule them with an iron, with a rod of iron. And, and I've said once, I've said it many, many times in our study in the book of, of Revelation, there's nothing new in the book of Revelation. It's all uh, theology and insights of the Hebrew scriptures, but communicated in a new way. Prophecy fulfilled in a way that wasn't understood until the last book of the Bible, but it's all here. And so this verse, verse 15, I want you to look at the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4. Isaiah 11, verse 4, it says, the Messiah will one day come and, quote, strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Isaiah 49, verse 2 says, God made his servants, quote, mouth a, like a sharp sword. This is the fulfillment of the promises of God revealed through his prophets, through the writers of the Old Testament, inspired in inerrant word of God, written and communicated, not even fully comprehended until the revelation of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the fulfillment of all these prophecies that he will rule with, a, with a, a rod of iron. That goes to Psalm 2, verse 9. And he will tread out the winepress. Now, this is that judgment of 
Isaiah 63, that fulfillment. We see both redemption and vengeance coming together in the finished work of Christ on the cross, that he stamps out the grapes of wrath on his enemies. And now the last verse in part one of three, and believe me, part two and three will go fast. Verse 16, on his robe and thigh is the name of, of the name King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The Roman Empire's arch enemy were the uh, Parthians. We've mentioned them before. They were from the east. And there are statues and records of the kings having uh, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, or names written or tattooed on their thighs. And so this is a, a sense of John seeing this and seeing that Rome's days are numbered because their greatest enemy is on the move, is on the march. Look, see the glory of the king, see him coming. And now let's go to part two, verse 17 and 18. I'll read, I'll read uh, those verses real quick. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly overhead, come gather to the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, all oh, the poor horses and their riders and the flesh of, of men, both free and slave, both small and great. So what's happening here? In chapter 19, there are two parties. The first one is a wedding feast of the lamb. Yay! The second is the great supper of God. Yikes! The reference here, Ezekiel 39, verse 17 to 20. This is some scary Hitchcockian type stuff. The angel calling down these birds that are taking out the enemy of God. Friends, listen. Listen to me close. Our marching orders do not include labeling people. They do not include you or I determining who will be at which of these two parties because they're different from us or they look different than us or they're from a different place than you and I. That's not our marching orders. We must look at these people, at all people, as those that have the opportunity to receive the Savior. That's our marching orders, the side of heaven. We are called to be witnesses. Now, in the end, we, we know in the end, the Lord will, will make his judgments and they will be right and they will be righteous. But our jobs are to serve, love, to reach out, to open our arms and open our wallets and open our, our homes if we have to, to perfect strangers. The book of Hebrews says, you invite someone into your home, a stranger, you might have entertained an angel. So this is not a, a picture of something that's like a vengeance uh, uh, hopeful scene for us. It's, it's a, a scene of final judgment that we then trust to Jesus so that we don't have to take vengeance ourselves. The final section is titled The Victory of the King, verses 19 to 21. And, and what we're seeing here in this, this battle, it's a perpetual state of satanic powers. This is ongoing. This isn't a one-time deal. This is the world in rebellion against God. It's not a single confrontation. It's ongoing. And look at what happens in this final battle. Everyone's suited up. There's Jesus and his crew wearing linen, and they're the kings and the powers of this world. They're all lined up, ready to fight. And what happens? 
boom, verse 20, the beast was captured. I mean, like that. Not much of a fight, is there? It says the battle, the beast was captured, and with it, the false prophet, that is the political military powers that persecuted the church, the antichrist, the false prophet, they're both hogtied and they're thrown into the pit, the lake of fire. This is Armageddon, folks. We saw it before in chapter 16, verses 12 to 16. That the kings of, of the earth on that final great battle day will gather, they'll be ready to fight, they'll bring everything they got, and it will be no contest. Just imagine the encouragement this would give to Christians who are being persecuted. The fight is over in an instant. And two of the three members of the evil trinity are cast into the lake of fire. And the third one, the dragon, Satan, well, that's coming in the next chapter. As long, at long last, we have the final victory of Jesus. John doesn't want us to spend so much time focusing on the where and when. The disciples wanted to know how long, oh Lord, and, and he said, it's not for you to know. We spent all that time just looking to Jesus. We want to look to the author and perfecter of our faith. We want to be in his presence and trust however these things work out, they will work out. Here's my application. Three points of application. You ready? Application for first century Christians and for 21st century Christians. Do not believe the lies of the world. Don't believe the lies of the world. See a bigger vision. See the victory that we have in Christ. Or as the astute philosopher, Dr. William Jonathan Drayton uh, Jr., better known by a stage name, Flavor Flay, once said, don't believe the hype. Don't. Don't, don't. Don't believe the hype. Do not believe what the world is peddling you. Don't believe it. There is a different narrative at work in your life. You're buying into what the world's telling you, how everything's supposed to work out for yourself, for your kids, for our community, and you're just following along the path of everyone else. Be countercultural. That's what he's saying here. So number one, don't believe the world's lies. That's the number one tool that the beast still uses is deception. Number two, be radically committed to your savior king and your new identity. Be counter-cultural in the midst of this crisis. Look different than your neighbors are. I'm talking reaching out in new ways. Beyond the, the things that everyone's telling us to do, no, as Christians, we're going to step up and do more. I love that our teachers did a parade for their kids. Why don't we have a parade of prayer throughout the whole region? I love that people are putting teddy bears in windows. How cute is that? The kids are like, oh, look, there's a teddy bear. What if we put signs out of what our family stands for? Be counter-cultural, radically committed to your Savior King, the one who rules over everything. Listen, listen. With all of your concerns, all of your what-ifs, all of the if-onlys that produce all kinds of worry, and anxiety, and depression. Oh, if only this, if only this could happen, or, or uh, what if this happens? And all the discouragement, with all of that, friends, listen, 
There is a king who rules over everything. It is impossible, Paul Tripp says, it is impossible to ever be in a situation, circumstance, or relationship in which the Savior King does not rule. And Ephesians, in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus rules these things for the sake of his church. So he doesn't just rule over them like, okay, great, God's in charge, he's ruling. No, he does it for your sake, for your good, because he loves you. We have a good understanding of salvation when we get saved in the past. Wasn't that great? We, we said a prayer. We had, maybe you had an event. Maybe it just, you grew up in the church, but we get that. And we get this future glory sense, okay, I'll be in heaven. But what about the here and now? In the here and now, in the midst of this crisis, be radically committed to your Savior King. Remember, there is a King. And Paul Tripp lets us say, it's not you. And every, everything that's out of your control, everything that causes you worry and fear and anxiety, everything you are not meant to carry, you give to him. What worry, concern, or issue are you carrying right now? He's saying, you're not, that's not for you to carry. You have to just hand, go like this and hand that to the Lord. Say, Lord, this is my fear. It's for my kids. It's for my husband. It's for my job. I'm just going to give it to you because I'm done worrying about it. What is it for you? That's what it means to be radically committed. And number three, I love this. The battle that never really happens, the battle's over when Jesus just says a word. Just one word. Jonathan's five years old. We're in Minneapolis at Perkins. It's a it's a pancake place with Cheryl and grandma and dad and five-year-old Jonathan. And he says, I want to invite Jesus into my heart. And he puts his little hands together and says, God, please forgive my sins and come into my heart. Folks, you have the most powerful weapon in your hands, in your house, the word of God. Don't post everything on Facebook, all the, the troubles before you've opened God's word and set it in the right context. You can see him and you can hear the marching orders he has for you. Okay, team, come on up. They are anxious to get up here to sing. They are anxious to get up here to sing. I'm going to repeat those three points. In the midst of our crisis, number one, don't believe the hype. Believe our king. Number two, be radically committed to our savior king and your new identity. And number three, look and see the king. Read his instruction manual and follow his marching order. Lord God, we pray that we would see a victory today. Lord God, that we know the battle belongs to you. It's not for us. Our marching orders, Revelation 14, 4, is to follow the way of the lamb wherever he goes. And that may be the way of, of sacrifice and loss, but God, it's for the joy of lifting up your name. So God, we pray as we sing this final song that whatever that work is that you need to do in us to change our thinking habits of what we're buying into and believing, to readjust the things that we're worried about and handing those worries to you, and then to really consider how are we taking the, the next 167 hours of this week so that we can grow our relationship with you, God. I pray that you would make that clear for us this first day of the week. Amen.